Last week I started a new series of messages entitled Living in Papa's Affection. And I told you that there would be three main points repeated uh, throughout this series. Number one is that God loves us extravagantly. The second point is, for the most part, we don't know it. <laughs> and the third part, the third main point in this series is that for the, for, for the most part, the, the blame for that lies at the feet of organized religion. So that's the three point. God, God loves us extravagantly. We really don't know it. And to a significant degree, the fault lies at the feet of organized religion. Last week in Living in Papa's Affection, the first series, and I told you that this was inspired by Wayne Jacobson's book, He Loves Me. We took a look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, that says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. I told you that the, the, uh, the root of that word, lavish, comes from lavashé in French, meaning a downpour of rain. When you think about the lavish love of God, think of a downpour of rain. Have you ever been caught in rain? Have you ever been soaked to the skin, to the bone in a downpour of rain? That's how lavish God's love is for you. I told you that we have a problem. And Jacobson in his book refers to it as daisy petal Christianity. And we go through what most kids did when they would play with Daisies, he loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, and he loves me not. Anybody remember doing that? Mostly the girls, right? And we fall into this trap concerning our relationship with God, and it's usually based upon our circumstances. If things are good, well, it must mean God loves me. If things are bad, it must mean that he loves me not. And it's a lie. Because he is love, and he can do nothing other than love. The problem is we can't feel it. And I told you that religion was like chemotherapy. And like chemotherapy has side effects, so does religion. One of the side effects of chemotherapy is neuropathy. You can't feel in your extremities. And that's exactly what religion does to us. We try to use it to kill sin, but the side effect is that we can't feel God's love for us. And because we can't feel it, we believe he doesn't love us. And that's a lie. One of the other side effects of chemotherapy is a performance-based Christianity. That if I behave well enough, if I'm just good enough, then maybe, just maybe, I'll merit my Heavenly Father's affection. And that's a lie, too. It's not about how good we are. It's about how good He is. It's a problem of perception and reality. Our perceptions and God's reality don't match up. Isaiah 55, one of my life verses, says that again and again. Again and again, he's spoken it to me in my life. His ways are not my ways. His thoughts are not my thoughts. Our perceptions and realities don't match up, and I need to adjust my perception and reality to his perception and reality. And this is his perception. He loves me extravagantly. Oh, what great love the Father has lavished on us, the Apostle John wrote. It's kind of like when we deal with our children. Every parent here knows this. You did something for your child's benefit, they didn't like it. And they, and they, tell, they tell you in response, you don't love me. It's not fair. It's 
kind of what we do with God. Of course we love, us. we love them. And of course he loves us. I told you last week, and I'm worth repeating today, I think it's time that we throw away our daisies and stop playing that he loves me, he loves me not game. So I want to, if we can, I want to show another video, just brief, about two minutes long. Um, Ginny had loaned me and Nadine, Nadine and I a, a series, uh, two videos, um, one, and one was called The Furious Love. And in this video, Furious Love, there's a pastor by the name of uh, Robbie Dawkins. He's a vineyard pastor in Illinois, I think Aurora, Illinois. And he talks about a dream that he had, and I love dreams. And so when I heard him say, I had a dream, it captured my attention. And I feel like it drove home the point I tried to make last week about it not being a performance-based relationship between us and God. So let's take a couple of minutes, and if the video will play correctly, listen to Robbie Dawkins talk about this dream he had. And I think that's where we've missed it. And I, I had a dream uh, many years ago that totally revolutionized my theology. It totally changed how I think of doing church. I grew up in church, and I grew up in a keep this, keep this, keep this, and this is what you are. I saw the Lord uh, show me this picture of this, this church filled with drug addicts, with prostitutes, with drug dealers, with, with uh, gangbangers, with people from all different sorts of, of crime life, and they were in this church, and they were doing everything wrong. They were having sex in the pews, they were drinking, they were doing drugs in the pews, they were selling drugs to each other, they were doing, everything they were doing was wrong, they were fighting. And I was trying to stop all that. And I remember at one point I hollered out and I said, if you're not going to honor God's house and respect his house, then get out. Exactly what probably the majority of pastors or leaders would say. And I remember the Lord speaking back to me so clearly and saying, why would you send away what I've sent in? Why would you send away what you've been asking for? And I said, God, I didn't ask for this. And he said, you asked me for the lost. And he said, now, keep it simple, love them, and let me change them. And that completely revolutionized how I thought of church and how I saw evangelism and everything. And it wasn't about pointing out to people what they were and were not doing, but what Christ was inviting them to. Love me, and I'll change you. Love me, pursue me, and I'll do all the hard stuff. I just want you coming after me. I started this movie wanting to see if God's love could exist in even the darkest of places. I knew that he loved us, but I was wholly un... Doesn't that sound right? Isn't something about that just resonate as right? <laughs> just love them, and I'll change them. Why would you send away what I sent in? <laughs> His ways are not our ways. Who said, for goodness, I woke up thinking about this. Who said, it's my job to change you? It's not my job to change you. It's not my job to fix you. It's not my job to save you. That's his job. He's really good at it. I suck at it. He's really good. What if my only job was to love you? What if that was my job? What if your only job was to love me and love everybody else in this room? And if somebody needs to be changed, then God will change them. And he'll do it on his timetable and his process. 
something sounds right about to me. What if, oh my goodness, what if he started sending into this place the lost? What if he sent in here drug addicts and prostitutes and the broken and the weak and the sick? It might mess up the carpet. Yeah. It might disturb our service. Who cares? So what? We might have to do things differently. I'm ready to do things differently. How about you? What if they did everything wrong? Okay. What if you do everything wrong? What if you're doing everything wrong right now? Does God still love you? Yeah, he still loves you. And if you need to be changed, he'll change you. You know what? You are doing things wrong. I did lots of stuff wrong this week. How about you? He still loves me. His love hasn't changed one bit based upon how well or how poorly I've behaved. Sin is sin. And so he'll, he'll deal with me and he'll deal with you. And if I'm confident and secure in the extravagance of his love for me, it's going to help me down the road of that path of fixing the broken things in my life. If I'm afraid that he's going to drop the hammer at every second, that's just going to make me hide better. I don't know if it'll make me change. I'll just become better at not showing it. There's a better way. I love that dream. That's an awesome dream. I think that was God. They were doing everything wrong. They were doing everything really, really wrong. They were doing really bad things. And God said to him, why would you send away what I sent in? Hmm. So I want you to know, I think there's room for them. And I think there's room for you. Religion is what messes it up. I have a little bit of energy for this. Can you tell? A little bit of passion for this. So today, in my second message on living in Papa's affection, I want to look at three things. I want to look at the attributes of God. I want to take a look at the incarnation. Why did he do it that way? And then I want to look at friendship with God. And it's by design that I've titled this series, Live, this series Living in Papa's Affection. The term Papa sounds intimate to me. It sounds approachable to me. It sounds safe to me. The term Father, though appropriate, sounds a bit formal and tends to sound less approachable. It sounds a little bit stuffy. And I, I just have to be honest with you, just for me, in my own relationship with God, as, as it has evolved and developed, I find the term Papa to be more appropriate and easier for my heart to wrap itself around than the term Father. So it's by design. I ca I've called it learning I've called it Living in Papa's Affection. And it's really a take on the title of Jacobson's 
book. He loves me. Learning to live in the Father's affection. So if you still open to John 15, follow along as I read verses 15 through 17. This is Jesus talking to the disciples, and, he, and this is the conversation they had at the Last Supper. He says, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love one another. I love that Jesus says, I called you friends. The term friend here, the word friend is philos in the original Greek. And it means the bridegroom's friend. It means the best friend of the bridegroom. It's the best man. He's, when he says, I call you friends, he's talking about a close, intimate friendship. Guys, who do we ask to be the best man at our wedding? Our best buddy, right? Our closest friend. The guy we want to stand there with us. When he says, friend, when I, he says, I call you friends, he's like, would you be the best man at my wedding? That kind of level of friendship. It's a tight friendship. And then he says, you did not choose me. I chose you. We didn't choose him. He chose us. I saw, another, I saw another interesting video this week. It had nothing to do with either Nadine's cooking show or Furious Love. It was called Street Games of New York. It was on PBS. Anybody seen that? It was about an hour long. It was great. They talked about all the games we played as a kid. Stickball and Stoopball and Scully. Anybody remember Scully? I used to play Scully, right? Anthony remembers. Boxball. I declare war. They went to all the games. Great. They also talked about how they would pick people for sides, right? I mean, it used to be terrible when you were the last one picked, right? Everybody's getting picked, you're just standing there. I love it here in John 15 where it says, I chose you. He picked you. You never picked him. It was like me dating Nadine, right? I chased her until she let me catch her. <laughs> right? He pursued you. And he pursues you still. Jesus said he chose you. Of the billions of people who've ever lived, he picked you. He chose us. Man, it's amazing. So hold on to that thought of friendship. I'll get back to it by the end of this message. I want us to consider for a moment some of the attributes of God. If you've ever done any theological study, you've heard some of these terms. Number one is that God is omniscient. He knows everything. He knows everything about everything. We know that he's um, omnipotent. He's all-powerful. There's nothing beyond his, powerful, uh, his power, his ability. He's omnipresent, which means that he's present everywhere all the time. Another attribute of God is that he's eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He's not confined by the restraints of time. He's immutable. He never changes. Scripture says that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
He's incomprehensible. He is beyond our ability to understand. I used to say years ago, if God was small enough to fit in my mind, then he's too small to be God. If he could fit in my mind, then I'm God. He's beyond my comprehension. His ways are not my ways. They're higher than my ways. He's self-existent. He depends on nothing for his existence. He, he, explaining who he was to Moses, says, he says, I am. I am that I am. He's self-existent. He's infinite, meaning he's limitless. Even the heavens cannot contain him. He's sovereign. He's in total control. He's completely supreme in every way. And you can add to that list that he's holy, he's just, he's righteous, he's merciful, he's loving, he's wise, he's faithful, and he's good. These are some of the attributes of God. What an amazing God we have. And with all these amazing attributes, with all of this limitlessness of who he is, I ask the question, why? Why? When you think about the incarnation, by the incarnation I mean Jesus coming to earth, why did he do it that way? Considering God's attributes, the incarnation could have transpired any way that he wanted. Why did he do it the way he did it? Why then? Why that time? Why that way? Why Mary? Why, why in a manger? Why not now? Hey, with YouTube and smartphones and Wi-Fi, word would have gotten out a whole lot quicker, right? If he did it now. Why did he do it that way? Why did he come that way? But mostly I'm asking this. Why the disguise? Jesus came in the disguise. Why the disguise? Why did he come in human form as a baby? Why did he stay hidden for 30 years? Why did he keep his divinity under wraps? Even with his disciples, Jesus was hidden, at least in part, at least for a while. Why? Now, surely the disciples knew that he was a man of God like David was, like Moses or Elijah, were men of God. But there was nothing, <laughs> nothing, in first century Jewish hope of a Messiah that expected God to be incarnate in flesh. They had no box for that. They had a box for another Moses as a deliverer, or a David to come and rule as king again, but the thought of God actually coming and they could have a face-to-face, hand-to-hand, physical relationship. They had no box for that. They had no box for God in human form. Nothing in the Old Testament prepared them for it. It was unthinkable. The God of the Old Testament was terrifying, and he was to be kept at a distance. How could a holy God live among sinful people and engage them face to face. Even the most righteous people in the Old Testament fell on their face before God, and some of the less righteous people actually died before God. 
So God came in a disguise. First as a baby in a manger, then as a young boy growing up in Nazareth, and finally as a young man walking the hills of Galilee. No one had an idea that God had come to live among them. Why? Well, as a result of his disguise, no one cowered in fear. No one acted awkwardly. That's why the disguise. You know, it's human nature for us to be influenced by title and position and power or fame or fortune. I think it must be very difficult for the rich and famous to have real relationships. They have acquaintances. Some of them have entourages. But do they have real friends? Do they have people they can trust? Or are they just looking for something? They're looking to ride the coattails or use that person as a springboard or, you know, somehow glean from, from their riches. The question has to linger in their minds. Are they really my friend? <laughs> or did they just want something? Well, imagine that same dynamic with the divine. You might be in awe of who God is. You might be terrified of him. But it would be very, very difficult to have a real relationship with him. Wouldn't it? But because of this disguise, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, since the first time with Adam and Eve, God was among people the way he wanted to be among people. To walk with them. To have relationship with them. And so as a result, people with broken lives were drawn to him and not repelled from him. No one felt the need to hide their brokenness from him. They could be real. They could be genuine. I think one evidence of the genuineness of the relationships that Jesus had is the disciples and the way they would behave. <laughs> In Luke chapter 9, they're arguing over who would be the greatest. Now, if you're trying to put your best foot forward and impress this famous, powerful person, let alone God, you're going to have that argument in front of him? Something had transpired in the way they related to one another that they could be real with him. And they were. They were authentic. They were genuine. The disguise worked. Now God could experience the relationship he's always wanted with his people. And through that relationship set them free from sin. It's all about relationship. You know, Scripture makes it clear that even up until the last day, that night of the Last Supper, the disciples had no idea who Jesus really was. If you have a Bible, you want to follow along a few of these verses, you can go to John 14. At verse 9, at the Last Supper, Jesus responds to Philip. He says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen the Father, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say... Show us the Father. The disguise was about to come off. 
Because in verse 10 and 11, he says, Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father's in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say, listen to verse 11. Believe me when I say, I am in the Father and the Father's in me. In a few hours, Jesus would be taken from them. He'd be tried, he'd be tortured, and he'd be executed. The next time the disciples would see him, he'd be the resurrected Christ. There would no longer be any disguising who he really was. How would the disciples treat him then? Would they cower in terror at his majesty? Jesus didn't want that realization to destroy the relationship that they'd cultivated all this time. No, in any, if anything, he wanted the intimate relationship to grow even stronger. Jesus' words in the upper room were designed to help them move through a progression. And that progression was to move from the experience of Jesus in the flesh to the Father they did not yet know. And then from there to move to a relationship with the, with the resurrected Christ, and then from there, a relationship with the Holy Spirit. See, instead of living with them in the flesh, now he would come and he would dwell inside them in the Holy Spirit. Instead of having a relationship with God as human being to human being, now the Spirit of God, his very Spirit, that aspect of the Trinity was going to live within them. And he's moving them through that progression of relationship. Listen to verses 19 and 20 of verse 14, of chapter 14. Jesus says this. He says, Before long the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also live. On that day you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Let me say verse 20 again. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. This is what he'd been preparing them for. This is what it was all about. It's incredibly profound. I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. In other words, Jesus is saying that the level of intimacy I have with Papa you have with Papa. The relationship that I have with Papa, you have with Papa. You see, we've been invited into the affectionate relationship of the Trinity. This is what it was all about. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. There's this ongoing circle of love affection, relationship between the members of the Trinity that has always existed. And out of their incredible love for us, out of God's extravagant love for you and me, he created us so that we could enjoy the relationship that they already have. We've been invited into that. Listen to verse 20 again. I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. We've been invited into the most incredible relationship of all time. 
So here we have a God who's all-powerful, can do anything, has no limits, and he introduces himself to us in such a way that he has a disguise on. Why? He could have done it any other way he wanted. He could have come at any time that he wanted. He could have been, you know, flashes of lightning in the sky. He could have appeared on the throne. He could have announced to the, every person on the planet could have had an angelic visitation at the exact same moment and said, God is here. But that's not how he chose to do it. He chose to do it in such a way that would foster authentic, genuine relationship. That's what he wants with us. He did it because he has such love and affection for us that he wants us to be able to approach him, to be intimate with him. Does that make sense to you? This was Papa's desire from the very beginning. This is why we were created. It's why we exist today, for the purpose of relationship. The greatest thing in all of creation is the love shared between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And they loved us enough to invite us into that, to share in that. It's all about intimate relationship with God with a God who's rich in mercy and who loves us extravagantly. Look at the lengths that he's gone to foster relationship. The friendship Jesus shared with his disciples is the model for the relationship he wants to have with you. Think about it another way. Why all this effort if all he wanted was obedient subjects? If all he wanted from us was to be obedient subjects to the king is a whole lot easier way of doing it. He just terrifies us into obedience. He's certainly capable of doing that. But he didn't do it that way. Because that's not the final objective. The, the, the objective is loving relationship. And love will make you go a whole lot further than the demands of rules and regulations ever will. He wants to be the voice that steers you through every situation of life. He wants to be that peace that sets your troubled heart at rest. He wants to be the power that holds you up, no matter how fierce the storm might be. He wants to be closest than your dearest friend and more faithful than any other person you've ever known. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? And it would be if it wasn't his idea. He's the one. He's the one offering to be your loving father, your papa. It's his offer. He's the one who wants to share life with you in ways that no earthly father ever could. So I ask you, please, don't brush off this invitation as some kind of abstract spiritual plane. When Scripture speaks about the relationship God wants to have with us, he borrows, he uses the most intimate language in our world. We're the beloved children of a gracious father. We're the bride of an expectant bridegroom. We're friends dear enough to die for. 
with chicks underneath the protective wing of a mother hen. It's obvious that God's serious about this intimacy and the security of this relationship. One that's built on love and, and trust. In February and March of 2008, God revealed to me that the highest place I could attain as a Christian, that the highest place I could go was to be a friend of God. He told me it would cost me everything, and he was right. And it's still by far the best deal in the universe. Guys, the Heavenly Father has extravagant affection for you. He's created you for relationship. He's chosen you. He's pursued you. He's made the way possible at his own expense. And he calls you his friend. Anything about the Christian life that doesn't fit into that doesn't belong in the Christian life. It's got to go. Those are the things that have to come out of our bag. This is the stuff he wants to put in it. So let's pray. Lord, I know this is true. In my heart, I know it's right. And I know it's you. I pray for myself. I pray for my friends today that you would write this truth on our hearts, that you would make it a reality in our lives. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that we would know the truth about who you are and how you feel about us and about relationship with you, that we'd know that truth and it set us free. Lord, I pray that you would take the chemotherapy of religion out of our system and that we'd no longer be numb to who you are, but that we could feel you. I pray for every person here that you would speak to them in their language. That you would communicate to them in ways that they know it's you. And you open our eyes to the incredible love, the amazing love, the extravagant love you have for us. And Father, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. If anybody needs prayer, please come on down. I'd be happy to pray for you today. Otherwise, uh, enjoy what I promise is to be a beautiful spring day.